Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It is great to be with you and particularly great to be with you on this special Sunday, this Baby Dedication Sunday. Uh, Are you enjoying it so far? Yes, yes, good. That's good to know. And I had my own daughter dedicated about seven months ago here. And for us, it was just a really precious day where we got to make promises to her and to God. Um, and, and actually, many of you as well made promises to us to support us as a family. And, and just on that, actually, there are still a few slots on the babysitting rotor. Um, so it's not too late to make good on those promises you made. Um, those promises you made before God in this place. Um, <laughs> In fact, there are about 350 people here. If you just took one evening each, like, and did maybe for the next 18 years, I'd never have to see her again. That would be incredible. It'd be, that's a joke, clearly. Um, you know, about a third of you would never make the cut. So. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's really great to, uh, to be here. And it's a real privilege to be able to share with you um, some thoughts for a few minutes. And uh, I think all of us, um, whether you would consider yourself a Christian or not, I think all of us wrestle with big questions at various points in our lives. We have questions about philosophy, about life, about meaning, about purpose, about religion, about God. And I want to address one of those questions today. I'm sure it's a question that many of us have asked ourselves. Perhaps some of us have really lost sleep over this particular question. The question is this. If God had a tattoo, what would it be? That kind of big, classic question we've all wrestled with, right? (laughs) If God had a tattoo, what would it be? I'll give you a clue. It's unlikely to be a heart with mum written through it. That's um, probably not what it's likely to be. But I I don't have a tattoo, by the way. I'm under no illusions that I am any way cool enough to have a tattoo. Um, And we were having this debate in the South Service, actually, about which is the coolest and most tattooed service of all our four. So if you don't mind me asking, how many people here have tattoos? A few of you, yeah. In fact, there's one guy I know here who has so many tattoos, he no longer has tattoos, he is a tattoo. I think that's <laughs> impressive. I, I am not cool enough to have a tattoo, I know that. Uh, there are a few other reasons why I don't. One, I don't like pain, so the idea of paying someone to come at me with a needle is not my idea of fun. Um, bit of a weird one, this. Um, my, my weight tends to fluctuate a little bit, so I'm a bit kind of worried about the idea. On day one, I'd have a tattoo, it would look great. A few months down the line, it would look like you were viewing me through a fisheye lens, which would not be... Uh, what artist wants to put their work on a canvas that regularly expands and contracts? That's not, that's not attractive. Uh, but perhaps the main reason why I don't have a tattoo um, is actually I just don't know what I would want to have permanently on my body. I, I, I don't know that there's any one idea or thing or image that I would want so etched onto me that it somehow defines me for the rest of my life. I also think that I would be one of those guys you hear horror stories about where I go and get something. I think this is amazing. It turns out not to be what I'd expected. I'd be I'd be the idiot that's like, I've got the Hebrew word peace on my arm. And all my Jewish friends would be like, why does your arm say toilet seat? And I'd be like, oh, no. (laughs) Only I knew Hebrew better. So I don't have a tattoo. Tattoos are permanent. Tattoos are painful. They take commitment, actually, and devotion in some sense. In the ancient world, tattoos would really define you. So people would have them for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes slaves would be tattooed with the name of their master in order to show who they belonged to. Sometimes criminals would be tattooed with the name of their crime in order to help people know how to respond to them. It somehow defined them within society. Actually, many people were tattooed as an act of worship. Just one example, in the Greek and Roman worlds in particular, people 
people would tattoo themselves with the name or image of the god that they worshipped as a sign of their devotion. So King Ptolemy IV, who was the Greek um, uh, king, he was tattooed famously all over his body with ivy leaves to, dis- um, to express his devotion to Dionysius, the god of wine. These people would tattoo themselves in order to show who they were devoted to, who was the object of their worship. So with all that in mind, what on earth would be an appropriate thing for God to be tattooed with? Well, in Isaiah 49, there's this strange little verse. It says this, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, in a world where people would demonstrate their devotion to God through engraving on their bodies, saying, look how devoted I am to you. The God of the Bible says, look how devoted I am to you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I don't know what you make of God. It may be that you're here today maybe exploring the whole God thing. I think many of us tend to imagine that God is perhaps distant, disinterested, um, dispassionate. Maybe he is a God who is so fixated on us doing things for him in order to show our devotion to him. Actually, Isaiah 49 suggests that the God of the Bible is more devoted to us than we could ever be to him. He says, see, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 49 is a beautiful but slightly difficult passage. We're going to look at most of it this morning. But it's a passage that's not actually written to individuals. It's written to a nation. It's written to a whole group of people. And in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and the whole Old Testament, in fact the New Testament, uh, we get this sense that God is about drawing to himself a big group of people. He is building a group of people who can be the recipients of his love and those who then dispense his love to the world around him. And when God speaks about these people, he doesn't do so in cold, hard language, right? Father, he uses the language of love, the language of family. God often is described as being like a father to this family. It says this, Isaiah 49, starting at verse 1. Before I was born, this is Israel speaking. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. It goes on, it says, they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. You get this depiction of God being like a father who calls forth this child of this nation and then provides for and protects them like a parent does a child. It goes on, it says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. There is a deep connection between parent and child. And the writers of Scripture, not just in this passage, but all the way through, say that somehow this is analogous to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Bible regularly describes God as being like a parent. Often it uses the word father. Sometimes it describes him like a mother. It often describes people as being like his children. His love towards us is like that of a parent towards a child. But actually, even in a weird kind of way, that's a pale comparison. Because we know that families are sometimes painful things. If I were to go around this room, I'd know that there would be many people here whose experience of family has been a difficult one, a painful one. And God acknowledges that here in this passage. He says in the normal run of things, the mother doesn't forget their child, but even if they did, 
I will not forget you. God's fatherly, motherly love towards us is greater than a love we can experience anywhere else in this world. There is a permanence to the love of God. He has engraved us on his hands. I have a friend who is a stand-up comedian. She's just brilliant. Um, in fact, here's a picture of her, which is just a great, funny picture, actually. But she's, she's fantastic. And uh, she's also a follower of Jesus. And a lot of her comedy is um, very whimsical, very childish, deliberately so. Um, but every now and then, she will just make a joke or a comment that will just make people think in unexpected ways. And she's got quite a big Twitter following. In fact, the, the Telegraph named her as one of the top 10 funniest people on Twitter. Um, I didn't make that top 10 list, but she did. Um, And she tweeted last Sunday, which was Father's Day, she tweeted out to 16,000 followers this message. She says, if anyone needs a dad today, reply to this and I will send you a dad message. So people started tweeting to her, uh, expressing why, for various reasons, they didn't have a dad who was there with them, uh, able to communicate with them that day. And so they tweeted asking, would you give me back a message uh, as if you were a dad? And so she started responding to these messages, these longings that people had, with what she thought a good father would say. And some of them were lighthearted, people just asking, hey, can we go and play football or just do dad things or whatever? But sometimes people were expressing things that were really deep, really moving. Here are just a few of them. One lady wrote, it's been 11 years now, only one of my kids knew him, to which she replied, I can never replace your dad, but geez, I am proud to be your dad today. Thank you. Someone else wrote, I just wish he understood me. She replied, well, I understand you. You are so fantastic. And she says, goes to shake hand, changes mind, and hugs, (laughs) to which they replied, hugs back. Thank you. Someone else said, my dad died on Monday. She said, just hold you. There's no words. Another person said, my dad's rubbish. My kid's dad died three years ago. My friend replied, I know you're a woman now, but you are 10 times the father I am. Your kids are lucky to have you. Someone else said, I'm usually okay, but this year I'm really struggling for some reason. A message would be lovely. She said, you are a miracle, genuinely. No one on or off earth is like you, thinking of you, kiddo. They replied, thank you so much. I'm in floods of tears now, but thank you. Finally, someone said, I need a fatherly tweet to be sure. She said, you are talented, you brilliant thing, and I am so, so sorry. They replied, that is exactly what I wish my dad had told me while he was alive. That's uncanny. And maybe it's just because it was a hot day and it was Father's Day or whatever, but I'm sitting on the tube just reading these tweets and I start to well up. Because I just all these people expressing these needs and longings and desires to be known And to know a father who loves and protects and provides for. And my friend just coming back and saying, here are some things a loving father would say to you. It just got me emotionally. And I couldn't help but wonder if we could hear the words of our heavenly father spoken over us. A father who knows us more intimately than we even know ourselves. Who knows everything about us. What would he say? What would he say to encourage us, to build us up? I think he would say this. I will not forget you. See, your names are engraved on the palms of my hands. God is a heavenly father who sees us, who knows everything about us, and who loves us deeply. And thinking of God like that is so powerful because when we reflect on the promises that people made on this stage just a few minutes ago to love and provide for and protect and raise well and and, and develop their children, God makes those same promises to us as a heavenly loving father, as a heavenly loving mother. And Isaiah tells us that God is building a family into which all of us are invited. 
He wants a mass of people that he can pour out his love upon and then use as those who, who take his love to the world. And this family that God is building is ex- extensive. It's huge. Anyone is welcome to respond to God's invitation. And although it started with one nation, God choosing Israel, that was never God's plan for it to stay that way. Actually, he said, I choose to build this family starting with you, but it should fill the entire earth. In the same passage, it says, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He said to me, you're my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. He said, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's saying, I'm not interested in just a tiny cross-section of humanity. One nation, that's it. I want you to be the people that take this message, this invitation of my love to the whole world, that everyone gets to hear the invitation. He says this, I will turn all my mountains into roads and the highways will be raised up. And this is a powerful, evocative image, if you think about it, of the extent to which God will go to make sure anyone can receive his invitation. In this ancient world, mountains would be just obstacles, immovable obstacles. You get to a mountain, it would add days to your journey to go around it. God says, I will wipe out the mountains if it gets rid of obstacles to you coming to me. He says, I'll flatten them. The highways often would run through the valleys, the low places. He says, I'll raise them up. God's like, if this is what it takes, I will change the whole shape of the world to make a level playing field so that anyone can run to me. He says this this family he is building is to include people from everywhere. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. People from all the corners of the earth are welcomed. Aswan is an area in southern Egypt. And if you know the Old Testament, Egypt was often one of the greatest enemies of the people of God. And God's saying, I will take people from the north and the west. He doesn't mention the east, but I think you're welcome as well. He says, I will even take the enemies The people who have slaughtered my people, enslaved my people, and welcomed them. Such is the extent of my love. The family God is building is not determined by ethnicity, gender, wealth, social status. Anyone is welcome. The invitation is available to all. Our Heavenly Father loves you and longs to draw you into family. But of course, this is actually only half the story. Because as Isaiah makes it clear, Israel was not a good choice. If you were wanting to start with any nation to build a family from, Israel was not the obvious go-to. They had a past. They were full of failure. They did horrendous things. In fact, the book of Isaiah begins with these words. Hear me, you heavens. This is the voice of God. Hear me, you... This isn't the voice of God. Uh, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. You think, what's this triumphant kind of declaration going to be? I reared children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Not a great start to the book. Woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. And that doesn't sound great. If we had invited you parents up here earlier to say, introduce your children. Tell us something fascinating about them. You say, here are my children. They are a brood of evildoers. <laughs> They're children given to corruption. I'd be like, I don't want to know your kids. And I definitely don't want your kids to know my daughter. <laughs> like, and yet, these are the people that God chooses to start his family with. It's to these people that he extends his invitation of unfailing love. 
And one of my favorite authors is a novelist called David Foster Wallace. And in one of his short stories, actually quite a harrowing story, he says this, if you've never wept and want to, have a child. (laughs) Parents laugh. (laughs) If you've never wept and want to, have a child. Because there is incredible joy that comes with parenthood. There's also incredible pain. And I think given that description there in Isaiah 1 of what this child, this, this people of Israel was like, I think God would agree with Foster Wallace here. And yet it is to these people that he extends his hands. He says, I have engraved you on my hands. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. God's love for his children is so great, so unfailing, that even when they rebel against him, even when they do their worst, he still reaches out his engraved hands to draw them back. This tells us something powerful about the love of God because it is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on things that we do. He loves us because he is love. I heard many parents talk about this for years and to be honest, I never really got it, uh, this sense of the unconditional love a parent has for a child. I never really got it until I became a parent myself, which is not to say that you can't appreciate this side of God without being a parent. It's just that I'm dumb enough that that's what it took for me to understand. I remember vividly the moment where I held my daughter for the first time and looked at her and I just felt this love, this overwhelming sense of love. I just thought, I love you. But I also think, I thought, I love you, but I don't know why. I don't know anything about you. You've done nothing to make me love you. You've done nothing at all. <laughs> like, I don't know anything about your character, your personality, your IQ, what you will grow up to do or be. I don't know anything about your passions. I don't know anything of the kind of person you'll be, and yet I love you. Why? Because love like that doesn't depend on someone earning it. I loved because I was a father. God loves because he is love. He loves each and every one of you here in this room as his child, and he wants to extend the invitation to you to join his family. And actually, that feeling I had of looking at my daughter is really only a pale comparison to how it is with God looking at us. Because I looked at her and I was like, I don't know anything about you. God knows everything about me. God knows everything that I work hard to keep you guys from knowing. (laughs) All my thoughts, all my fears, all my failings, all the things I think and I'm so glad don't come out loud. (laughs) All the mistakes I make, everything I have done that's been bad and everything I will do that will hurt others. God loves me despite those things he knows us he sees us as we truly are and he extends his engraved hands towards us i read a story recently which is just really quite moving it's from a book called the pursuing god by joshua ryan butler a brilliant book i'd highly recommend it um and he tells this story of a couple who are friends of his a couple called jim and sarah um who took into their house a girl called misha who uh, was a teenager and she had been abandoned by her family um, when she was very, very young, she'd actually ended up being trafficked into the sex trade. She'd been abused and exploited, a horrendous, horrendous background. And Jim and Sarah bring her into their house, and this is the first time she's ever been in a safe space. And as you can imagine, it took her forever to adjust. It was painful. For those first six months, she would kick and scream and be violent and angry and aggressive. And actually, the way she responded to Jim and Sarah was quite different. So to Jim, she would be warm and she'd be pleasant, actually because that's the way she'd got affection and attention from men in the past. And although Jim never reciprocated in in an inappropriate way, it was painful for Sarah to watch, particularly when Misha started calling Jim dad or father. Her reaction to Sarah was completely different. She would throw things, spit, scream, curse, 
blame, accuse. She would never, ever call her mum. She'd call her everything under the sun, but never, ever call her mum. Six months in, Jim and Sarah are exhausted and they decide they needed some time by themselves. So they got a friend, a trusted friend to babysit. They dressed up, they went out for dinner. And the whole time they're there, they're enjoying being together, but they're also worrying what's going to happen. Is Misha going to be okay? Are we going to get back to find the whole house is trashed? Eventually they get home and they speak to the babysitter and she says, no, it's been fine. Like we've not heard anything. Like she just seems completely asleep. So they went up and they peeked in and sure enough, she was lying there in her bed completely asleep. They think, phew, <laughs> we got away with it. They go to get ready for bed and Jim walks into the bedroom opens the door and just stops dead and Sarah's like what's the problem he says please don't come in and she said no no no, I want to come in he says don't please trust me do not come into the room and she forces her way in she's just insistent she comes in and what she sees just just devastates her she sees the room just trashed and Misha had taken her red lipstick and scrawled on the walls forgive me she scrawled f you mum over and over and over and Sarah's looking at this and she begins to shake, and tears begin to roll down her cheeks as she looks at this message. And this sound, this aching sound, begins to well up within her until it spills over as laughter. And she laughs, and she laughs. And she falls to the ground and she's shaking and weeping and laughing and she can't stop laughing. And Jim's thinking, what is going on? Is this, has this tipped her over the edge? And eventually he manages to calm her down enough to say, why are you laughing? And she wipes away the tears and she catches her breath and she points at the wall. She says, don't you see? She called me mum. <laughs> I think that is a beautiful, powerful picture of the love of God. He knows us. He loves us even at our worst. And even when we reject him, when we fail him, when we spit in his face, but then we turn around and we say, would you have me back? He laughs and he cries and he catches his breath and he says, yes, <laughs> they have called me dad. That's the love of God. You may well feel today that if there is a God, you can't imagine he would ever be interested in relationship with you. That is so far from the truth. I sometimes talk to people who say, if you really knew me, you wouldn't think God could love me. If God really knows me like you say, he couldn't love me. He loves you. Whoever you are, however you see yourself, however unlovable you may feel, God loves you. He extends his engraved hands towards you. Take a moment today to reflect on this. The creator of the universe, the one whose hands flung stars into space, has your name written on the palms of them. That's how much he loves you. Tattoos are permanent. They're painful. They're a big commitment. And when I think about Isaiah 49, and maybe some of you, if you are Christians, if you know the rest of the story of the Bible, when I think about this painful idea of having a name engraved on my hand, I can't help but think forward a few thousand years to the death of Jesus, where on the cross, he sort of physically, literally, went through embodying this verse, taking the pain of the world upon himself. And this would take longer to explain than I have in my final three minutes. <laughs> but actually, at the heart of Christianity is the understanding that the cross shows us the full extent of the love of God as his hands are engraved for us. I'd like to illust illustrate this through a, um, 
story I saw in a documentary recently. It was part of a series that BBC Three did called Amazing Humans, where they looked at people who use their skills or talents or passions in incredible ways. Actually, the documentary is too heavy to show you this morning. I won't even show you many photos. Do feel free to look at it online, but it's, it's hard going. Uh, but this story is amazing. It's the story of Whitney DeVell, who is a tattoo artist from Brisbane. And she said that one day she was at this party and she was talking to this lady and she noticed that the lady had scars on her arms. And Whitney started talking to her about it and she said that she had put those scars there herself when she was a teenager many years before. And they were talking about it and this lady said how much she hated the fact that they were there. A constant reminder of her old life, her old pain. Every time she looked at her arms, she saw them and it brought back the memories. And Whitney thought, I know what I could do about that. She offered to tattoo, not at the party, but she said, come to my studio. I will tattoo over those scars. Instead of these painful things, I'll give you this beautiful floral pattern. And so the lady came to her studio and she did. She tattooed these flowers all the way up her arms. And the lady was so moved because where she had looked every day and seen this reminder of her past, now she saw a symbol of new life. And Whitney was so moved by her reaction, she thought, I wonder if there are others who would value this. So she put out the call on Facebook. She said, I am happy to give one tattoo Every week, completely free to someone who needs a tattoo for these kinds of reasons. This is what she says. She says, I've always believed in more, a more compassionate world, a kinder world where people would help those in need if they were in a position to do so. So I created the Scars Project. I offered to tattoo one free tattoo a week until the end of the year to help those who'd suffered at the hands of domestic violence, trauma, severe surgeries, self-harm and more. I wanted to create awareness for mental health in an already judgment world. I wanted to bring light back into the lives of the survivors and make them feel as beautiful on the outside as they already were on the inside. She posted this message or a message very similar to this on Facebook. Within two weeks, she'd had 2,000 replies of people asking for help. She did 50 free ones in her first year. Now she offers heavily discounted tattoos to anyone who needs it for these sorts of reasons. And in the documentary, it shows that as people come in, they don't just sit there and go under the needle and get this art done and that's it. They actually start pouring out their hearts. They express things of their deep hurts and longings and pain. They tell some of the story. There's a lady who tells her story and says, I've never told anyone this before. And as they pour out their hearts, Whitney is able to turn their pains into pictures of new life, beautiful art. And in a small, strange kind of way, I think that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. I think that's a beautiful picture of Jesus' love towards us. It reminds me of the life-changing power of God. Because at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the brokenness of the world, all the wickedness, all the division, all the evil, all the pain, all the hurt, all the death, all the scars. He took it upon himself. He removed its curse. So there's no longer anything standing between us and God. And he offers us new life. All that old source of pain and hurt can be gone, covered up, made new, turned into something beautiful. At the cross, he offers us an exchange. He takes our scars upon himself and he gives us his life. Where there once was pain, there's now hope. Where there once was scars, there's now beauty. Where there once was death, there's now life. And anyone is welcome to experience the love of God. And because Jesus not only died in our place, but rose again from the dead, that new life is powerfully available to anyone. Love overcomes death. If God had a tattoo, what would it be? It would be your name. 
engraved on his hands. He says this, See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's how much he loves each and every one of us. I wonder if the band can come back up. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of worship as we close, just celebrating the love of God, this invitation he makes to us. And it may well be that you'll hear it today as someone who is exploring questions of faith. Maybe you have a ton of questions. Maybe you already did. Maybe I've spoken and now you have double the amount. That's fine. I would love to talk to you and help if I can in any way. I'll be here at the end. Or you may find it helpful just to talk to someone you've come with, a trusted friend. Ask them, what difference has the love of God made in your life? Or feel free to talk to anyone you've seen here at the front today. Or if you would rather take some of those questions further outside of this setting, again, that's fine. You go, if you go on our website, you'll find a page there that will help you to explore questions of faith further, give you some ideas of things you may want to read, things you may want to think about. Or perhaps today you're thinking, actually, if there is a God who loves me like you say, I would like to experience something of that love today. Well, if you would value anyone praying with you, we would love to do that. And we'll have a team at the front who would love to pray with you, even if you have never prayed before. That is fine. Come and let these guys pray for you, that you would experience something of God's love today. In fact, I'd like to pray for us generally before we worship. Is that okay? Why don't we stand? And I'll pray. And then if you would like to make this prayer your own, why not simply say amen, which means I agree. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you are not a distant or disinterested God, but you care deeply for us. You see us and you know us, and you say over us, I will not forget you. See, your name is engraved on the palms of my hands. And as we have celebrated new life and family today, parents making promises to their children, we thank you that you make those same promises over us. I pray right now, would you fill us with the sense of your love and draw us deeper into relationship with you as part of your family. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.